0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. This week, who exactly is advising the Prime Minister? Plus, should the West be prepared to defend Taiwan? And finally, how do you join the world of underground chess? First up, in our cover story this week, our editor Fraser Nelson takes a deep dive into Number 10 politics and finds a court of chaos inside. With a large parliamentary majority, an extremely young team, and the departure of Dominic Cummings, Is there anyone left in the Conservative Party who can stand up to the Prime Minister? Fraser joins me now, along with former Conservative Party Chairman Kenneth Baker, to discuss the reign of King Boris. Fraser, you start your cover piece this week by saying that Tory MPs have started to notice what you call a worrying pattern in the Prime Minister's behaviour. What exactly have they started to notice?
2: Well, this isn't the first time that uh, Boris Johnson has marched them up to the top of the hill only to march them down again. There is a a pattern now where number 10 will take a bold decision and it will will fight until such times as it works out it probably shouldn't have picked the fight in the first place but it performs a U-turn and it looks shambolic. We see this several times. We saw it over, for example, most famously with the free school meals of Marcus Rashford's campaign. They crumbled on that. We saw it over a couple of weeks ago that there was a suit rebellion, and the government didn't see that coming. But the Ewan Paterson thing is quite spectacular. Boris Johnson decided to overturn the the regulator's judgment against Owen Paterson and indeed reform the regulator. And he got 240 of his MPs to vote for something which they thought was just simple madness. And they thought they were doomed as well because you need all-party support to reform the sleaze watchdog. Boris Johnson didn't have that, but he went ahead anyway. And now, not only as he could egg on his face, but he's taken what used to be a small, isolated incident over Owen Paterson and magnified it into a sleaze scandal now engulfing the whole Conservative Party. So any Tory MP with outside interests is now is now open season on them. This fits a trend of, of Boris Johnson's misjudgment, which Tory MPs think isn't just an embarrassment, but has led them into a position where they have now about to increase taxes to the highest level in 71 years. Now, that's exactly why Boris Johnson said people shouldn't be voting for Jeremy Corbyn at the last election. Corbyn, he said, will take your taxes to a post-war high. No, and now it's the Tories who are taking taxes to a post-war high. But because Boris just keeps thinking of these, these grand plans, ordering people to vote for them, and the thinking seems to come a long time afterwards.
3: Well, uh, the real problem is there's no one in Number 10 who understands the House of Commons. Nearly all the ministers have got to very senior posts without having a long experience. They've only been in the House of Commons for three or four years, or a very short time. And Boris himself doesn't like the House of Commons. He turns up just for question time on time and leaves immediately. He doesn't sit around and listen and chat to MPs. Uh, And there's no understanding at all as a result. And there's no experience of past experience. If he'd listened to some of the sort of... uh, the retired grandees like Michael Howard or Norman Lamont or Michael Forsyth, they'd all been through the John Major Premiership and knew about Sleaze. And they would have known from the very early moment that the Paterson came up that Sleaze could come back in a very big way indeed. So the political antennae of the people in Number 10, including the Prime Minister, just isn't there, quite frankly.
1: With such a large majority, does Boris Johnson not have the mandate to govern with this kind of personal style? No, I think he's
3: got the curse of a very large majority. Uh, When you've got a very large majority, you think you can assert and not debate. You think they can instruct and they have to obey. And that is the problem that actually goes right through issue after issue in this government. And they try to avoid scrutiny. It's much more demanding if you have just a majority of 20. Then you have to listen to the House much more carefully. You have to listen to backbenchers much more carefully. But who speaks to him about the nature of the party? Does Graham Brady speak to him very much? I very much doubt that indeed, the leader of the 22 committee. Whereas Margaret always kept in touch with the 1922 committee leadership and team and respected them. The other voice that's missing is a strong party chairman. And the party chairman should at some stage ask to see Boris in this last few weeks and say, look, come on, this is looking absolutely awful. The party's not with us. Uh, you know, the protests that we're getting from the party are tremendous. <clears throat> the other thing about Sleaze was that when I was the party chairman, I had no idea who the donors to the party were my treasurer, Alistair, would, would, would tell me... He, said, he gave me a budget once, for once a year and he said, that is it and don't exceed it. And he never. And he said, I will never tell you who actually supports the party personally because you must not be influenced by that and they must not think that they have an influence over you. He said, I will tell the prime minister and the leader about the people who support the party. So I had no idea for the two ideas for the two years when I was party, party chairman, who actually the sponsors were. I would read about them in the newspapers occasionally, but I didn't know for sure. And the trouble is that this is all now linked with party getting money all the way through, the selling of the, peer, the peerages for three million. It's really bad news. And an MP earning £900,000 a year for working in the Virgin Islands against, actually, the case presented by the Foreign Office, it's, you know, fairy tale stuff, this. You couldn't write it. John le Car- This comes from a John le Carré novel, doesn't it? It really is extraordinary what's been happening. And, and in fact, what is missing is a strong voice and voices. And there are people that uh, he could listen to, but he doesn't bother to. People like Michael Forsyth, I've already mentioned. Michael Hard and Norman Lamont. Um, Who've been through all of this? They've been through sleaze,
2: right? But, But Kenneth, realistically, I mean, Michael Forsyth is of a generation. He's unlikely to listen to somebody from David Cameron's era, let alone from the Thatcher era. Don't you simply think that the right now, every prime minister governs in whatever way they want. Margaret Thatcher, at the time, was seen to be outrageously imperious in the way that she governed her cabinet, the way she divided it into wets and dries. People were saying she was tearing up convention left, right and centre, but she still got away with it. She basically governed in her own way and it worked.
3: But she was, she was a much, look, Margaret was a much more thorough person than, than Boris. When she was involved, many of the decisions were made in cabinet committees, not in the cabinet, in which she would preside or be a member of. And uh, she got three briefs. She got the brief from the cabinet secretary, the brief from the political advisers in number 10, and the brief from the department. And w- when you went to these meetings, you would see that she'd read them all. I could see underlinings on the last page very often. Boris doesn't do that. Boris sort of acts instinctively and jumps very quickly to a particular decision. And that's that.
1: Well, Fares, this is a point that you make. You say that there are courtiers rather than advisers giving advice to him. Is that unusual? And does Boris recognise that that might be a bit of a problem?
2: Well, every Prime Minister surrounds themselves with people they trust. That's certainly the case. But of course, every Prime Minister and for every leader of every organisation needs somebody who can dispense hard truths to them as well to tell them when they're getting it wrong. Now, I think what we're seeing in number 10 is a little bit of overcorrection. When Dominic Cummings was Chief of Staff, what Boris Johnson thought was of peripheral concern. Dominic Cummings was, was quite open about the fact that he tried to create structures to cut the Prime Minister out of the equation. Then he was fired, and now I think it's swung the other way. For example, you've got Simon Case, who's very young, the youngest ever head of the civil service. Dan Rosenfield, who at 43, is a very young political chief of staff as well. Neither of those two can really warn the Prime Minister about the political problems he's going to face. Now, as I understand it, when he comes up with a mad idea, let's take, for example, when he got pinged for COVID and he thought he would skip quarantine. Now, that was obviously a crazy idea. He's forcing hundreds of thousands of people to isolate at the time, and why would you give yourself an exemption? But that was allowed to go through without anybody pointing out to him that this was obviously mad. And that is the problem. Now, the thing is, I don't think that Boris Johnson wants to be a kind of great dictator. I don't think he wants to be surrounded by yes-men. The problem is that he's very slow to trust people. If you look at those... That around him he's got him. Um, for example, Anne Zindel, she used to be office manager here at the Spectator. Um, under Boris he's taken um her with him. He's got um you know Linton Crosby, who he he, he trusts, but Linton Crosby is now doing other things. He's got Eddie Lister, so Eddie Lister, who's with him in, when he was London Mayor, he's trying to ask Eddie Lister back to Number Ten, but he doesn't want to do it. So. It's in a way. It's up to him to convene the team that will tell him what's a good idea and what is obvious well, madness. I agree like
3: with that entirely. And one of the great, the figures that Margaret listened to, <clears throat> you could see very clearly, were the cabinet secretaries like Turnbull and Armstrong. They were outstanding civil servants, and they would all been around the track. They'd served Wilson. They'd served Heath. They knew a lot about the old whole, whole pressures that mount upon a prime minister, the present one are all sort of dewy-eyed and new. And the ministers are fairly dewy-eyed and new too.
1: Kenneth Fraser makes the point that there doesn't seem to be many people who could succeed Boris at this point. Would you agree with that?
3: Well, having been through two leadership troubles with Margaret when I was very close to her, and he actually even remembering a challenge to Ted Heath, um that is likely to emerge in one way or another because we're going to head in into serious cost of living problems this winter probably exactly last for most of next year if you get inflation up to 5 or 6% all the sums change dramatically and change fundamentally the economic policy of the government and it's going to be hard very hard going and the, the real one of the problems with boris is that he loves to be the man who is going to announce the golden the golden policy. He's not very interested when it becomes silver, less when it becomes bronze, and he's out of the room when it becomes lead. The fact that he did not attend the debate this week in the House of Commons, I make a very short speech saying, I'm sorry, there's been a mistake, I must accept some responsibility for that. But he left it just to Jacob Rees-Mogg and the Chief Whip to be there. I think that was a massive mistake.
2: But but Kenneth, I'd like to put to you two things. One is that right now, not just with his big majority, but with the Labour Party as weak as it is, he can get away with almost anything. Do you think there is any serious prospect of Labour winning the next general election?
3: I think Labour will actually recover better than you think. I think one of the stars, actually has emerged, is Rachel Reeves, the shadow Chancellor. You can see how she's improved in confidence in dealing with the budget thing, the budget debate. That was a very good reply, and she's used much more now up front. They've also got, with Angela Rayner, someone who could hit the jugular. You know, she's immediately on to uh, the former Attorney General using his office and this sort of thing. You need someone like that. And, in fact... I think some of them getting more experience. I think Starmer had a very good reply the other day. Uh, And I think that there comes a stage when you want a different type of person as your leader. And there will come a stage when the party will want somebody different from Boris as their leader. That will happen. That is the nature of politics.
1: Fraser, can you see that happening anytime soon?
3: You,
2: well, I struggle to, but for the simple reason of this, there, there are all sorts of people who could run the government as well, or even better than Boris Johnson. But how many people are there who could win all these northern constituencies that even Margaret Thatcher didn't win over? There is a sort of um, Boris factor here, that I struggle to see anybody replacing. I think where the Tories are weak is in the sort of the southern constituencies. When you lose your, your, your base there, you might have new vulnerabilities opening up. But right now, I think this is one of the reasons why, despite all of this madness and mayhem, Boris Johnson probably isn't that worried, because he'll think to himself, who out there? can go off to, to Sunderland, to win these first-time Tory voters who voted Boris. They didn't vote Conservative. Now, would they vote for Rishi Sunak, as enthusiastically as Boris? Would they vote for, for Kwasi Quartang? Would they vote for Pretty Patel? These are all impressive Tory leaders. But do they have the sort of insurgent factor that Boris Johnson seems to ooze? So this is the paradox. You've got a very strong campaigner who, as long as he can win the next campaign,
3: is safe. But do remember that Boris really won because he really won over the Brexiteers. There's no question about that. Uh, And did it in a very positive way. There's no question about that. He now wants to be remembered more than doing that as being the person who has really launched international policy on climate change. But look, the politics of the next two years will very largely be determined by the economy in the next two years. And there's going to be a lot of people suffering The cost of living is a major crisis in the course of the next year. There's absolutely no doubt to people. People are going to be worse off. Higher petrol prices, higher mortgage prices, higher energy prices, higher supply chain prices. Uh, and, And people are going to suffer. And many in the red wall seats are going to suffer. Because they have less resources than the people in the other seats in the country, quite frankly. Uh, And for the rise of £150 is a a real major difference in their lives.
2: Can I ask you a final question, Kenneth? Couldn't it be that your day and mine is simply over, that you and I might like low tax, low regulation, small government conservatism, but the political market now is for something else. People want the high spending. People want the a large NHS budget and people will vote for it in large numbers, But which is why the criticism of you and I will fall by the wayside.
3: Well, I don't know. If you want all those things, which are very admirable things to want, the consequence is higher taxes. The public will have to pay more for them. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Social care is totally underfunded, even with the amount that they've got. Because I'm now 87, so one does begin to know, you know, the cost of a, uh, of being old, and it's very high. And when you're old, it pays to be rich, because the rich can buy things very, very quickly indeed. Whereas most of the country can't do that, don't have the resources to do it. And they're going to be more and more of those people. And so... You know, things are different in politics, but there are certain things in politics that are absolutely standard and they go through whatever it may be. The circumstances may be slightly different today, but they still depend upon the fact of winning the support of ordinary, very middle and lower middle class people.
1: Thank you, Kenneth and Fraser. Just a quick interjection here, if you're enjoying this podcast we have a host of other podcasts available including Table Talk which I host with Olivia Potts. It's released every two weeks and we're always joined by an interesting guest who tells us all about their life through food and drink. All the links are available in the description. Next up, tensions over the island of Taiwan are rising at an alarming rate. In The Spectator this week, Alessio Patellano, professor of war and strategy at King's College, and Elbridge Colby, author of Strategy of Denial, both write about what the West can do to defend Taiwan's autonomy. They both join me now. Alessio, this week Xi Jinping will issue what he's calling a resolution on history. What exactly does that mean and why is it going to be significant?
4: So first of all, if we take as a general metric the, the frequency of a resolution on history, this is only the third time in the uh, Swiss history and the first two times the previous times was Mao Zedong and then Xiaoping and if we put that into context when they adopted the previous uh, resolution on on, on history really at heart what you're looking at is taking stock of an experience of a certain period of time and in a way provide a narrative on how to read past experience as a way to set the context for what's going to happen next so it is important in that sense because it tells at least three things. First of all, Xi Jinping wants to put his own mark on how to read and understand China's past up until now and plays his own experience, plays his own contribution within that. Number two, it suggests also that that narrative will tell us something about where she wants to take China next. And number three, it, because of its importance, it will probably suggest how Xi Jinping is actually confirming or changing the order of priorities on his agenda as he starts to move towards the 2049 deadline of 100 years of CCP.
1: Elveridge, one of the points that Alessio makes in his piece is that it's still quite unclear what line would need to be crossed for the US and its allies to respond to China. Where do you think that line is?
5: Well, I think to put it bluntly, I think the United States very likely would defend Taiwan. I mean, I think there are sort of quote unquote gray zone provocations, which sort of definitionally are those that are not sufficiently provocative to generate a large military response that the United States is unlikely to get involved in. It doesn't get involved in all the provocations against its allies like Japan or the Philippines. But I think that any significant use of military force against Taiwan, certainly Taiwan proper uh, rather than the offshore islands is likely to generate a U.S. response. And I think President Biden... I mean, he's sort of fumbled around on this sort of strategic ambiguity point, but he's actually just touching on a reality, which is I think that people will expect the United States to defend Taiwan. And most importantly, I think the Chinese expect the United States to defend Taiwan. I mean, just the other day they were rolling out, I mean, literally a replica of a U.S. aircraft carrier, or at least a kind of simulacrum of it in the Western desert to do target practice. That was not hidden, right? They knew we were gonna see it. So that's kind of their expectations.
1: You write in the week's issue about what that might look like. What would it look like if America had to defend Taiwan?
5: Well, I think what's important to understand is that I think China's unlikely to sort of work its way up to dramatic military action because that doesn't actually make sense. And the Chinese are not stupid. They're very, very smart and capable and they've been working on this problem and they care about it a lot. Um, There's often a sort of a a sense that first the Chinese maybe will use all these gray zone and then they'll seize an offshore island, infamous from the 50s. And then maybe they'll do cyber attacks and then they'll work their way up to a blockade and then they'll do a half-hearted military invasion. That's not how you do things, right? I mean, to quote Napoleon, if you want to take Vienna, you take Vienna. And so I think what the Chinese are much more likely to do if they are resolute about it, which I think they are, and I mean, I'm not an expert on China, but they look pretty resolute and they have the capability then you go big or go home, as we say in the United States. And that means an invasion. And then what you do is you shrink to as small as possible the warning window for the United States, because it will take us some time, hopefully less time, but it will take us some time to respond effectively. And so that's the paradox here that I think people often don't appreciate is that if it does happen, there will be relatively little warning.
1: And I say you, you say in your piece that for the time being, China's strategy seems to be to break Taiwan's will to fight rather than outright conquest. What are they trying to do? in terms of trying to break their will?
4: I think that um, Aldrich was mentioning this about what in the sort of common vocabulary these days is described as grey zone activities. I would probably recast it slightly for a broader audience in terms of coercive activities, right? different forms of coercion that could be constabulary, could be military, could be political or indeed economic. And it is important to perhaps use sometimes a vocabulary that is slightly more all-encompassing, as it were, because that's the way the Chinese approach the question. Right? It is about weakening the Taiwanese sort of will to resist to the notion that reunification is inevitable. Right? And and I think Eldridge is absolutely right when he points out about the question of being resolute. Certainly, coercion is one way in which you showcase your resolve. And make it harder for everybody else to take a decision over what to do to respond to it and when uh, to respond. So in this sense, I think if you look ever since the pandemic started, and certainly I would say since the second presidency of President Tsai, there is a clear sense that coercion has been going up, uh, the dial has been turned upwards, and, and you can certainly have that sense, of whether it is militarily, whether it is economically, um, whether it is even in terms of using the pandemic to try to isolate an international organisation, which would have benefited benefit from Taiwanese input to try to isolate Taiwan, push it out. So it's harder to, to pin it down to one single activity, because you have to literally overlap the different layers, right? The political, the diplomatic, the economic, and when you put them all together, you see that there is certainly this idea of pressure through coercion, that could be military and non-military, to try to convince the Taiwanese people that just the option of remaining separate is not a viable option, and that indeed to instill in the sort of common perception that after all, reunification is not only inevitable, but it's only the only outcome you should be really looking forward to.
5: I mean, I think Alessio eloquently describes what I think the Chinese did in the past, but I think they increasingly must clearly recognize that that strategy is failing. In fact, the world is going in the opposite direction. So polling on Taiwan suggests very clearly that not only is there opposition to being subordinated to the People's Republic, but there's the growth of an independent Taiwanese national identity. Very, very few people identify just as Chinese. President Tsai was decisively reelected So the sort of the apogee of that approach for Beijing was under the last administration of ying Zhou, which ended with, I think, the lowest approval ratings in the world, literally. And of course, Taiwan is now being brought more into the fold, not only by the United States, but there was an important article by Stephen Erlanger and another reporter from the New York Times about how Europe is actually moving on the Taiwan issue. So all of the trend lines are going against China. So this is good news in one respect, because it means that Taiwan, like say Australia can stand up to political, economic and other forms of coercion. But the bad news is that it's going to increase the allure of direct military action for China.
1: Albert, oh, you I mean, you make the point in your piece that while China spent the past 25 years allocating resources, to getting ready to take Taiwan, America's focused on other things and also that Taiwan and Japan have slightly neglected their defences. Is that starting to change?
5: Yeah, I would say grossly neglected. I mean, I think it's so gross in the case of Taiwan that I increasingly wonder whether people are thinking about getting out of town. I mean, in the same way that people in in old Hong Kong used to have Canadian citizenship or what have you as as a backup plan. I mean, it's honestly befuddling because the way that Taiwan will fall is if they fail to do their own level of self-defense to make it sufficiently a palatable task for the United States, for the American people, which is not a given. That is starting to change, and and President Tsai and Foreign Minister Wu have deserved credit, but way too slowly. I mean, I think they, at minimum, should treble their defense spending immediately. They have a small additional budget this year, but it's way insignificant. And same with Japan. I mean, it's unconscionable in a way that Japan is still spending just 1% of GDP on defense. So I think they should immediately double their defense spending. Now, the current government has said they will move towards that, but that has not yet been followed by any action. But the security environment is really severe, and uh, there's not that much buffer for Japan if Taiwan were to fall.
1: And is there much appetite in America for America to have to come to Taiwan's defense?
5: I think there's support for a defense of Taiwan, but it's conditional, like for anybody. And I think that's across the aisle. I mean, the, I think the question that Americans ask me, you know, as one of the people sort of arguing for a, you know, interest based approach to defending Taiwan is, you know, what's in it for us. And I think if the costs and risks become too high, the American people will back off. But the same will be true for other allies. So what's critical for Taiwan in particular is to raise the level of their own defence enough to make it a palatable task for the United States and Americans.
1: And let's see, just finally, what does this mean for the UK? Elbridge points out in his piece that Britain's military capability in the Far East is thin at best. What would we be, how would we be involved?
4: Well, first of all, I think the first action to take is to start having a more meaningful debate in the UK, but also with our closest partners and allies. In terms of, you know, comparing notes and getting a better sense of how do we feel this might evolve? Because, of course, the question of of mounting pressure makes the prospect or the possibility of military action possible. But between where we are now and where we could be there, there is some room to go. Because, yes, of course, Taiwanese are All the stats tell us that they feel differently than in the past about being Taiwanese. But that doesn't change certain fixed parameters. For example, the move towards the professional military has not provided a particular increase in numbers for the Taiwanese military. So in a way, what does that say? It says that Taiwanese want to be Taiwanese. But at the same time, that doesn't automatically translate into them saying, and I am willing to fight for that. Right. So I think that the, the Chinese government still have room to go there. And it is absolutely imperative for countries like the the, the UK, for a reason that I'll explain in a second, to really sort of start having discussion internally and then with their closest partners about what it looks like, what are the possible crisis scenarios and how do we navigate that. And why does this matter to the UK? It matters because the integrated review made a very important point about how the Indo-Pacific region matters to the international system and to the UK in order to build and maintain and sustain a future prosperity but it also did so with a consciousness that today there is no prosperity without security. And in the Indo-Pacific, that means, among other things, contributing to maintaining, sustaining a degree of stability at the regional level. Now, of course, as forces are designed today, there are limits to what the UK can do. But here it depends only if you focus on the UK contribution in terms of direct military support alone. I think that we are in a space in which A shaping strategy, one in which we are complementary and integrative to our partners and allies, does two important things. One, frees up assets and capabilities of our partners to do the higher end of the spectrum beats, um, if you want. And two, it sort of allows us, with our limited resources, to enable... And expand what our partners can do in the region. And here, whether it is OPVs, whether it is frigates, whether it is through AUKUS, potentially in the future submarines, or what CSG 21 has proved with the Queen Elizabeth this summer, when we have assets available to bring a magnet in terms of a multinational task force. These are limited contributions, but essential contributions nonetheless.
5: I have a somewhat different view. I mean, I think the reality is that Britain's contributions in the Far East would be essentially nugatory, right, in the event of a high-end conflict, which is what would be dispositive here, whether it actually happened or whether people assessed that it might happen and judged how it would go. The critical thing that Britain can make a, a central contribution to is the fact that the United States does not have a military large or capable enough to be able to fight two wars in Europe and Asia. Uh, certainly not simultaneously. And the deduction I take from that is Asia is more important for the United States interests. It's a much larger economic market area, and China is a much more severe threat than Russia is. So if we face a choice, including if the Russians go first in Europe, we will have to focus on Asia. So that means if the Chinese attack first, we'll have to focus on Asia. But even if the Russians go first into NATO, we will have to withhold capacity because we don't have enough, say, munitions or platforms to do both conflicts. So this leaves a major gap a very significant gap, and the natural way to plug it is with European NATO cap- capabilities alongside the efforts of states like uh, Sweden and Finland. I think the u k can play a really important role, and I want to commend and applaud the United Kingdom for its increase in defense during the pandemic. The big problem here is Germany, but you know anything that, that the United Kingdom, along with other European NATO states and partners can do. To convince uh, Moscow in particular not to take advantage of this kind of dynamic would be by far the most significant contribution that London could make.
1: and Elbridge, thank you very much for joining.
6: The Spectator magazine
0: combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher
1: and finally chess one of the world's oldest games is making something of a comeback with underground chess clubs starting up all over the world jamie and joker goodwin ceo of uk music writes about this phenomenon in this week's spectator And I'm joined now by Jamie, the author of the piece, and Nick Moore. Nick is our social media editor, and I should say that right now they're going to be playing a game of Blitz chess in the background of this podcast, so you might hear the pieces moving around the board. Jamie, in this week's issue you write about discovering the world of underground chess. Can you start by explaining to listeners how how you came across it?
0: So, I was in... Paris about four years ago now, um, and I went to go and visit the Luxembourg Gardens, where chess players famously sit, play chess um, in the park, Um, had a nice few hours, sit playing chess with a few people, and as they were leaving, I asked the last person I was playing, where else is good to play? I got the bug, I felt like a few more games. And this guy basically suggested to me a location, a name, and a bar somewhere. And I was slightly intrigued, but I thought, I'll go for it. Went along to where he told me to go. I found this bar that was just closing up. I thought he'd sent me on a wild goose chase. I said to the guy in the bar, I've been sent along by Jay. The guy shouts with delight is thrilled pulls out a chessboard and starts playing me a chess and I'm slightly confused as to what's going on because this bar's basically shut but as we start to play a load more people turn up and it turns out that this bar when it closes up a load of people turn up they sit and play I found myself spending basically the entire evening with this little chess community, about a dozen dozen or so people, went to a load of different bars, ended up at a nightclub. I got in about six o'clock in the morning, not quite sure if I'd dreamt the whole thing or if it's real or not, but it's fantastic. There's all sorts of little chess communities, little chess groups that play in um, pretty much every city. You've got them in London, one I found is in Paris, and they pretty much exist all over. There's hundreds of millions of chess players around the world, and you can normally find them wherever you're going.
1: I'm very impressed that you're being able to play chess whilst talking to me here. Nick, you're obviously also a keen chess player. Have you discovered this underground world of chess?
6: I haven't discovered this underground world, but I was in Paris last year, and we had a similar sort of thing where you're walking around Paris in the streets and you might come across, like, just chess boards outside with groups of, like, men playing or older of the older generation it's just great fun I just walked up to them and we just had a game it just as Jamie says in his piece it doesn't matter where you are and where you come from it's just it's the great leveler really mm. everyone's got the common common love of playing chess it's just a great thing to do
1: and Jamie take us through what you're doing here because this is blitz you're playing very very fast <laughs> yeah,
0: so beauty about chess is you can spend hours and hours and hours playing chess or you can play games in a, in a matter of minutes so sometimes you'll have games check you'll have games that will last for a couple of hours this one is three minutes blitz. So each player's got three minutes to do all their moves. If your clock runs out, you lose the game. So the trick is to try and win the game, but in the allocated time that you've got.
6: And the common thing with blitz is you think, oh yeah, just defend, 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 try and run down the clock and make sure you don't use up all your time. But what, what happens with me and Jamie play quite a bit is I try and get the time to wind down. And what happens is while I'm doing that, he's slowly beating me. So I'm, I'm, I might have a few minutes left on my clock and is he's that got what's 10 seconds. Are you that about is, to be beaten? I am about to be beaten, <laughs> which I'm very used to. But... but
1: and Jamie, you've played in New York and you say that people there wager bets on who's going to win. What's your advice to people who want to enter that market?
0: Yeah, I also say be quite careful. You often find chess hustlers. They look slightly shabby. They sort of look, they kind of say, oh, I want a game played for money. Some of them are quite good, some of them actually are. Not actually great players, mate. Sometimes not actually <laughs> great players, but they know all the tricks. They've been playing for years, and you can find some people who'll play for five dollars a game. You find some people um, who'll play for sort of like hundreds of pounds a game sometimes. So I think the advice I give is go for the sharp guys in suits because they've normally got more money than sense, and it'll be much easier to win cash from them than it will the, the hoodie guy in, uh, in Union Square.
1: We're also about to be joined by Malcolm Payne. So Malcolm, we've just been talking about the world of underground chess. Is this something that you've experienced? Have you played all around the world?
7: I've played. All around the world in CD cafes on the tele- beachfront to, well, how can I put it, I've played in, played in the caves. Yeah, there's underground chess all over the place.
1: And how do you go about finding someone to play? I mean, is it, is it always very obvious?
7: I find that the easiest way if you want to have a game of chess is you just get your chess set out, set the pieces out, and then, you know, just look utterly disinterested and someone will always then come up and challenge you to a game. That's one of the great things about chess. It's so universal and so popular, there's always an opponent.
1: And Nick, how did you start getting involved in chess? Have you been playing for a long time?
6: Uh, my father grilled it into me from a very young age. I've been playing since I was very young. And for the first probably 15 years of my life, he took great pleasure in destroying me every single time. Until, And I think that was his way of teaching me until eventually I, I won one game and he didn't speak to me for a few days. That's how I got into play. Just, we play a lot in the family, but it's, it's just such a brilliant game. I find it very, very peaceful and you can always you can as malcolm said you can just take your chess set out and as Jamie mentions in his piece you take it out and then someone will someone will come up to you who's got to spare a spare few minutes and just wants to have a game and it's just such great fun
1: Jamie, you mentioned in your piece this young parisian who worked for the civil service and you were there at the, at the very point that the british and french governments were going had a war of words as you put it over our fishing rights do you think that you know more conflicts could be solved sooner if they were settled over the chess
0: <laughs> i mean i am um... Well, I think one of the things I put in the piece is one of the things that's beautiful at chess is you have to put yourself in your opponent's shoes. You have to try and get in their head, think what they're doing, think why they're doing it, work out their strategy. And another word of that is empathy. It's about trying to understand people and you often realise how much you've got in common with people when you have a game over the chessboard with them. You, I mean, Nick, I've developed great friendship with by various games of chess. Malcolm, again, completely inspirational guy. Meet up with Malcolm every now and then for a game of chess. And it's the sort of thing where you feel that you can really get to know people and understand people over that common shared experience. So absolutely, I always used to think that you shouldn't be allowed to work in government unless you learn how to play chess. <laughs> <And> like, uh, <laughs> so Say, it's <laughs> say half in jest but it's got all sorts of benefits. So I think um it would be much better if a lot more people learn to play and had the opportunity to play. It. And actually, I mean Malcolm's wonderful charity, Chess and Schools and Communities. They go into schools, they go into prisons, they go into all sorts of settings to teach people how to play chess. And it's something I think we should see a lot more of.
1: And Malcolm, for beginners, what is your advice as to starting chess?
7: Well, I think that the first thing to do is just to find a video on YouTube that teaches you or else a, a good book. The very good one is Play Chess by Yasser and is a good one, or I could just shamelessly plug my own shop at chess.co.uk, which has lots of beginner's books. I would find a book or a video that shows you how the pieces move. There's a very good one on chess, a very good ones on chess.com that show you how the pieces move. And actually all this material is just free and out there. And it's democratized chess to the extent that not only can millions more people learn far more easily, but actually people can also become very good as well. Whereas in the past all the detailed and important knowledge was the property of the soviet union and their grandmasters now everyone can can learn how to play and, and lots of people from many different countries have now become very good to the extent that the world champions are norwegian could i just go back to one previous point i must issue a word of warning about trying to settle this fishing dispute over. The, over the <laughs> I, I just, it's just that historically we were always way way better than the french at chess i mean to the extent that someone like me who was just a jobbing pro and barely in the, in the UK top 20 or even 30, who go to France and win their Open tournaments. But now they've recently engaged the services of this Iranian prodigy, Ali Reza Firuja. So they actually have two players in the top 10 now, and there's there's a serious danger they'd they beat us in a match. Although we'll find out. I'm literally on the way to the European team.
1: <laughs> I should just say that Jamie's just won the second round of blip.
7: Very, very sadly.
1: No, yeah. I'm
7: never going to live
6: this
1: down. <laughs> Jamie, you, at the end of your piece, mentioned that chess isn't without risk. Talk us through the the story at the end of your piece, because it's very entertaining.
0: Yeah. Again, like Malcolm says, a really nice thing to do is take a chessboard with you, set it down. You meet all sorts of people with it. I often, when I go abroad, will take my chessboard along. But I've found it can have dangers, particularly when you go through airport security. So if you look at the piece, if you feel the piece, uh, they're mostly all lead-weighted. So they've all got little bits of lead in the bottom of it. And it means the pieces have a nice weight to them. But it means they also don't tip over if you're playing outside. I'm in Beirut Airport, I put my bag through the scanner and everything starts to go mad um, because the scanner's picked up 32 small lead discs. (laughs) All the guys are shouting about it, you've got the Lebanese border force who are, sort of they look like they can take care of themselves. Not to be messed with. Um, Not to be messed with. (laughs) They're all kind of shouting about what looks like either bullets or ball bearings or some sort of bomb in my bag. They open up my bag and the first thing they pull out is my digital chess clock, which I'd left on and so it was ticking beeping flashing and counting
7: oh. down like, like some sort of sp- i've had the ticking board uh, control No, it doesn't go down well at
0: all. but fortunately um fortunately one of the guards i think he must have been a chef there because he sort of realized what it was and sort of calmed the situation down so again it's a uh, where maybe we should start with making sure that everyone in Border Force knows what chess is to avoid situations. <laughs> you have got, like hey, got it
1: on your phone, is this? And I know that people play on their phone. Nick, you, you play on your phone I'll as well, don't on you? On is that phone, yeah. lots of people playing each other on their phone at the moment?
0: Lots of play on phones, lots of play online. I think over lockdown, it really took off online. One of the things yeah. that really sparked that is Queen's Gambit. So it's Queen's Gambit, the Netflix series, uh, which came out in the middle of lockdown. Lots of people watched that, thought, this is great. I want to start playing chess. And they start doing it on their phones. It's really easy to do. You just need the app, which is free. You can play people across the world. You can play one minute games. You can play 30 day games. I was actually a bit sad that Queen's Gambit came out during lockdown because it sparked a huge rise in online chess but I always thought if it had come out now you'd be seeing all these people out in parks and, and uh, Kids cafes at school, and things yeah. playing chess outside but now I've got the, the time on my phone now which is a much easier way of, um, of doing it so again it's it's amazingly cheap you can pick up a chess board like the Chess and Bridge shop on Baker Street 20 quid nice silicon board you can have a free app on your phone and it's something that can last a lifetime you can meet people you can take it abroad with you you can spend hours in the pub probably one of the most enjoyable low cost slash free activities sort of, known to man
1: Malcolm just finally where in London would you recommend going if someone wants to try out the kind of underground so, chess yes. world
7: so, so there's lots of kind of regular group chess meets I me mean, first of all the English Chess Federation has a list of all the clubs in the country but in terms of sort of more casual settings there's a group of people who meet on Saturday mornings in St John's Square in the city and there's also some people who meet by the river in Greenwich those are two that I know of that are proving very very popular and regular and hopefully when we feel able to post COVID restrictions, we always had a few tables outside our shop where people play chess and they were in use most of the time. So you can sort of go for a more formal setting for chess, club, but I would recommend just going to one of these informal gatherings at first and you'll find someone roughly of your level. I think there are people of all levels who go and play there. And at some point, somebody, and I've been trying to do it for, what, probably since 1979, someone's got to start and set up a chess cafe in London. There used to be one in Hampstead called The Prompt Corner, which was a joke because they had the slowest service in London. And one day it closed and it moved to Camden Town. And when that closed, since then, for about, I don't know, 30 years, I guess, at least, we haven't had a chess cafe in London. So anyone out there feeling a bit entrepreneurial, come and see me. They've
0: just opened one in Paris, which I found about two weeks ago, which was absolutely glorious, and um, called Blitz Society, which is absolutely fantastic. It's just basically a bar set up, all sorts of tables everywhere, just chess boards. Go there, you meet people, you play. It was one of the most enjoyable few hours I spent in my life. So if they've got one in Paris, we definitely should try and have one in London at some point.
1: how are we going to beat the French? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Nick and Jamie. And what a lovely treat to also be joined by the Grandmaster himself, Malcolm Payne. And that's everything this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, as ever, if you pick up the latest issue, you can read everything we've discussed. And if you become a subscriber today, you can get 12 weeks of magazine for £12 delivered to your door along with a £20 Amazon gift card. I'm Laura Prindergast. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.